So tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17, and it should be up on the screen. Um, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in you in Christ Jesus, in that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I, will, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Really welcome. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Trevor Johnson. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, we're going to be working through 1 Corinthians for the next couple of months, and it'd be great if you have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I'm sure it's on your phone. Those who are part of a growth group will have their little booklet um, where the text of 1 Corinthians is printed on one side, and then there's a page for notes on the other side. Um, thank you so much for coming along this evening. Why on earth are we having a look at 1 Corinthians? Well, uh, 1 Corinthians is an incredibly up-to-date letter in the New Testament. You might think, of course, every bit of the Bible is relevant and up-to-date. Well, of course it is. What 1 Corinthians does, though, it takes some of the massive issues that was going on in the world 2,000 years ago, particularly in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and Paul teaches on them. And some of those issues, some of those big topics, some of those big ideas, we're as familiar with them today as they were back then. Um, things like, for example, our gender, things like sex and morality, things like freedom, things like our rights, things like equality, all of those things are rich in 1 Corinthians. So that's one of the reasons why we're having a look at it over the course of these next couple of months. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, and we praise God for it. We're going to pray now as we get stuck in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you love us so much that you've given us your word. We give you thanks, Heavenly Father, that you've given us your spirit. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit tonight, we would understand what is in your word. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, that he died for us, 
that he was raised again from the grave. Lord, we pray that he would be our message, that he'd be on our lips. We pray for your help this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you have ever heard the phrase, I am not religious, but I am spiritual. I was driving down to the church this evening, and on Radio 4, yes, Radio 4, I play Radio 4 because I'm cultured. Um, I'm actually from a farm, so agricultured. Uh, I, it happened to be on, I, I, sorry, everyone's embarrassed by my wit, no, anyway. Um, and th- there was this kind of chat going on, the, the presenter was talking to someone, and this someone was someone who had been part of an organized religion. She didn't specify which, but this was the mantra throughout the interview. And then there was another person came on board in the interview, and they said exactly the same thing. Now, what do they mean by that? I am not religious, but I am spiritual. How do they define religion? Religious. How do they define spiritual? Well, it kind of goes something like this. Well, I want to feel the other. Feel the move of something within me. I, I, I'll, I'll get a feeling. I'll, I'll, I'll get a something, an otherworldly experience. It's beyond me. That's, I think, what they mean by spiritual. They don't want anything fixed. Being a Christian, of course, you've been given fixed things. The Bible, for a start. The facts about Jesus. Being spiritual means, well, you don't really need to do anything with those things. In fact, it's pretty much up to you what you think how you live, what you feel. I think that's the difference. Corinth, this ancient Greek city, was a spiritual city. But it was also a massively religious city. There were loads of temples. There was loads of religion. But their religiousness was spirituality. Their spirituality had impacted every part of Corinthian life. Corinth had two ports, one at either end. It's, it's, you'll need to look at a map for this. You'll see that there was a port on, port on this end and a port on this end, and the city just was between the two, which meant that there was a lot of throughput, through traffic, going from mainland Greece right up to mainland Europe. And, of course, the port with the sailors and the tradesmen coming from different parts of the Mediterranean and beyond. It was a very rich and diverse culture. There was an incredible bit of wealth because there were loads of businesses in Corinth. So the place was a real mix. The city was a real mix of religion that was spiritual. What do we have in 1 Corinthians? Well, there is a church that became a church because Paul preached the gospel, preached about Jesus Christ coming from heaven to earth to die for our sin and to be raised again from the grave. That was the message he preached, and that was the message the Corinthians had received. But what happened to that message? They began to not change the message, not believe another message. Instead, what were they doing? Well, yes, they had the message here, but then what they did was bring in from their culture and their presuppositions. 
spiritual, religious ideas. And they saw the message of Paul, the gospel that he preached, through that lens. That's what was going on in Corinth. And it caused a huge number of problems. So much so they believed in miracles. But they rejected the resurrection. So much so, how on earth they ever got to this point, they thought that incest was okay for a member of their church. They thought it was okay to look down their noses on other Christians. They thought it was okay to use the great gifts that God had given them to try and not outdo one another in godliness and love and holiness, but simply to outdo one another in their giftedness and the exercise of their gifts. The world around them had shaped their view of the gospel. So much so, the gospel wasn't being rejected, but Paul the apostle was being rejected. What he taught, how he went about it. You see, Paul wasn't a very impressive guy. He didn't look cool. He wasn't built. Some think he even might have had a stutter. And as time went on and the Corinthians got used to Paul and used to his message and used to living the Christian life, or so they thought, they began to back away from him. And instead, they preferred not him, but the more exciting of the apostles. In fact, the super apostles. They preferred them. They aligned themselves with them because Paul seemed a bit weak, a bit pathetic. And in fact, the message that he preached, Paul preached, was particularly pathetic because what it involved it involved the ultimate symbol of weakness, a crucified Messiah. All a bit embarrassing for the Christians of Corinth, particularly since the city valued so much else. It valued intelligence. It valued rhetoric. It valued worldly strength. It valued worldly teachers. It valued one teacher over another because that, of course, was the way to attain the truth. So Paul writes to this church. This church, there was a bit of a problem church. I kind of think being a minister, a pastor of a church like this, that's really quite easy compared to what Paul would have faced as pastor of this church in Corinth. You know, you have your problems, you have your arguments, you have your disagreements, but it's all right compared, really, genuinely, it's all right to compare to what Paul faced in Corinth. This was a New Testament church. We all want to get back to the New Testament church. Kind of just throw off all the shackles of organized religion, organized Christendom, all denominational distinctiveness, all denominational ways of going about things. We want to get back to the pure church, the New Testament church. Well, this is one of them. The church that didn't believe in resurrection the church that loved the miraculous but rejected the resurrection. The church that loved the miraculousness and giftedness but yet it was okay for a man to sleep with the mother-in-law. Anyway, 
1 Corinthians. I'm going to read from verse 1. And it's really, this bit breaks down into two. Paul greets them. And as part of that greeting, he tells them, you have everything in Jesus that you need. And then the next bit is, you're not acting as if it's enough. So it breaks down roughly from verse 1 to 9. You have everything you need in Jesus. And then 10 to 17, you're not acting as if it is enough. So verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. That's quite a difficult word to say, Sosthenes. So I may stumble a couple of times saying Sosthenes, and it, my voice might go a bit strange. Sosthenes. Anyway, um, so Paul was the apostle. Paul was the apostle. Paul was the one who met the risen Jesus. Paul was the one who hated Christians. He was called Saul back then, but Jesus reached to him. He was converted and then commissioned. Paul, Sosthenes is his secretary, his PA, or his amanuensis, that's the word, his secretary. He would have been the guy on the scroll writing this out and doing all the kind of stuff with this letter. So Paul, who is he? It's important to be absolutely sure who Paul is. Because I bet you at some point in your life, you have been challenged. You will be challenged. Maybe even being challenged at this very moment in time as to who Paul is. We're a bit embarrassed with Paul. We don't really like what he has to say. Some people say his message, Paul's message, is a completely different message to Jesus's. Jesus's message was one of love, joy, peace. Whereas Paul is very legalistic. Paul is very misogynistic. Paul is even homophobic. Is that the way it is? Actually, whenever you delve down deep into 1 Corinthians, you'll realize it's none of that. That's who Paul is. Paul speaks authoritatively on behalf of Jesus, and we must listen. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ, of course it was the will of God. It certainly was not Paul's will. He hated Christ. He thought Christ was rubbish. He thought Christ was a blasphemer. So clearly it was the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and a brother Sosthenes. To the church of God, so that's Paul, verse 1, then this is the church. This is the addressee to the church of God. This is how letters in the ancient world work like this. Remember, they're on scrolls. So it would have taken a long time. We sign our letters at the very end. These letters would have come in a scroll. So that's why it was at the very top, because it would take a long, long time to unravel the scroll. Who's writing this thing? Well, it's Paul. Who's he writing to? To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, there probably were a number of different little churches in Corinth. But why does he use this terminology? To the church of God. Well, because one of the big issues, and these first 17 verses, indeed these first nine verses, give us a bit of a trailer as to what's going to come up in the next bits of Corinthians. And this is one of the things. There was very little unity. Huge division. So to the church, and there were probably multiple little churches in Corinth, but he says to the church 
of God that is in Christ Jesus, that is in Corinth. Here is the first location, the geographical, temporal, temporary location to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here's their spiritual and eternal location. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's referencing these other churches, which they may have known. In fact, he is raising money for churches elsewhere. You see this particularly in a second letter, 2 Corinthians. You've got the earthly location, Corinth. You've got the spiritual location, Christ. Called to be saints together. The second bit of this passage shows very little togetherness. He says, together, you lot, because that is the way it is for all those who are Christ Jesus's. Grace to you, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gets into it. This is an incredibly encouraging start. These are incredibly encouraging next few words because would he hear what Jesus has done for you? Would he hear what God has done for you? If you're not a Christian here this evening, don't tune out because this is hugely important. I give thanks, thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you're enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Incredible words. This is the spiritual reality of those who professed Christ, who become Christians in Corinth. It all comes from God, every last bit of it, nothing from themselves. I always give thanks to my God, verse number four, I always give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. See, this is the incredible thing. In order to become a Christian, what effort do I need to put in to become a Christian? Nothing. What do I need to do to persuade God to save me? Nothing. It all comes from God. And we respond to what he has done for us. Remember a moment ago I said the church of Corinth would be a nightmare to pastor. And as you read on in this letter, you'll realize that they are a nightmare to pastor. They are a nightmare, a nightmare, not murder, a nightmare to kind of look after and to keep on track. But listen to these encouraging words at the start. Even though they were a nightmare, he is absolutely certain and sure that they're safe in Jesus. Verse 5, that in every way you're enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. I don't know whether you know anything about Corinthians. I don't know whether you know anything about Corinth. 
But these two things bubble up to the top of the surface time and time and time again in this entire letter. The Corinthians valued speech. They valued rhetoric. They valued even, I'm sure you've talked about this before, speaking in tongues. They valued also the prophetic, the prophetic word. They valued also the great eloquence of these super apostles, the great eloquence of those who were their teachers. They valued all of that. They valued speech. They valued knowledge. This knowledge is the great insight into truth, the great insight into ultimate reality. They valued all of these things, and you'll see it picked up time and time and time again. But what happened? Well, the framework with which they were approaching these things was entirely about the culture, entirely shaped about the culture. We'll come on to that in a second. Verse number six, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking, lacking, not lacking, not lacking, in what? Any spiritual gift. They have Christ, and they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is another big idea in 1 Corinthians. And Paul is telling him, you are not minus anything. None of you is in Corinth. You're not minus anything. They put such an incredible emphasis on spiritual gifts and one being more gifted than the other. Then the other might have felt, well, look, I don't have that spiritual gift, therefore I'm lacking somehow. I don't know who all is in the room this evening, and I don't particularly know the church backgrounds of everyone in the room this evening. Maybe you've been part of a church where spiritual gifts are talked about a lot. Maybe they're talked about perhaps to the detriment of your confidence in Christ. Maybe you look around and you see all these people who have incredible spiritual gifts, and you look at them and you say, I don't have that that he has or I can't do that, that she can do, and I'm therefore a, kind of a second-class Christian. I'm not a four-cylinder Christian. I'm a three-cylinder Christian. I'm a bit lesser than he is, a bit lesser than she is. Maybe you're from that kind of background. That was Corinth. That was the church at Corinth. Giftedness equaled true spirituality. Giftedness equaled true blessing. Giftedness equaled what it really meant, or so they thought, to be special as far as God is concerned. But is that the way it is? Is that the truth? Well, Paul would say, no, no. You've got everything. No one lacks anything. And who are they looking forward to? 
Jesus. See, this is why Paul could say the church of Corinth, even though it's crazy and messed up and dirty and all that kind of stuff, even though you are, you are waiting for Jesus. You have turned from idols, as Paul says to the Thessalonians. You have turned from the idols to the true and the living God. And you're waiting for Jesus. That's the mark of the Christian waiting for Jesus, waiting for his return. But maybe your life is just about your life. That it's just about how you are going to progress in your university career or indeed in your career career. Maybe as far as Jesus returning, well, it doesn't feature. Maybe as far as Jesus coming back, you'd really rather he didn't because you're having such a good time. The mark of the Christian is they're waiting for Jesus Christ to be revealed when everything, everything, everything will be theirs. You see, we're not in heaven now. We're not in heaven now. One of the basic mistakes that people make with the Christian life is that they forget there's a now and a not yet. There's what is for the now, and there is what there is for the not yet. And we think that the things that are for the not yet, that is complete healing, complete wholeness, no sin, that's not for the now, that's for the not yet. That's for the other side of the grave, not for here and now. You see, we will have completeness in Jesus in the not yet. We live in this incredible tension between the now and the not yet. And Jesus will sustain us. You see that? In verse number 8, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's revealed, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's you if you're a Christian. That's me with you. What incredible words for the start of a letter which Paul puts the boot in with. That's what they've got in Jesus. That's the certainty that they've got in Jesus. But how are they living? Well, they're living in such a way as they prove that Jesus isn't enough. That these facts are not enough. And in fact, what they do is they take these facts and they skew them somewhat. They see them through an entirely different lens. They take the values of Corinth and apply it to the gospel and let the values of Corinth shape them 
instead of them reading the values of the gospel, understanding that not Corinth, but Christ, they should be shaped by Christ, not Corinth. And what's the first thing he picks up? Well, it is that Jesus is not enough. This is quite a strong letter. You even might feel a bit uncomfortable reading it because you might feel that you've fallen into the traps that the Corinthians have certainly fallen into. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. The first thing that he picks up with the Corinthians is that they're divided. Is that they're not together. They're not saying the same things. They're not thinking the same things. They're not going in the same direction. What does this look like? We'll have a look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe. Chloe was probably a businesswoman. For it has been reported to me by, to remember that they live in this thing with two ports where they are in the world, near Greece. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Do you see what's going on here? The church at Corinth was being leaderistic. There was a lot of leaderism in the church at Corinth. They were finding a key figure. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is Peter. They were finding a key figure in Christianity and lining up behind them and saying, oh, my figure is better than your figure. I don't mean my figure is better than you, but you know what I mean. My, the one I follow is better than yours. I follow Paul, some of them saying. Paul was the one who planted the church at Corinth. That, that's the old crowd. That's the original crowd. Oh yeah, I was there, probably older. I was there back in the day. I remember it. I remember whenever Paul, he was a young whippersnapper, he arrived in Corinth. I remember him. I remember he, he had her back then. No, he doesn't. I remember when he arrived. I'm one of the originals. I was here back at the start of this thing. You know the number of times I've heard people who are part of a church saying to me, oh, I've been here from the very beginning. I remember the time when. That's that crowd. I follow Paul. Being a bit superior. As if I've been around from the very beginning, that gives me a right to have a stronger voice. That gives me a right to, you know, exercise a greater influence that gives me a right to be respected more than all those newcomers you hear this kind of stuff in a church I follow Paul then I follow Apollos Paul was the evangelist he planted the gospel in Corinth I follow Apollos 
who was Apollos. He was the one who came along after Paul and established the church. Not starts the church, so to speak, but established it, as in made it stronger. He might have been the one who had, well, more knowledge of the Bible, greater abilities as a preacher and thinker, more intellectual perhaps, more rigorous perhaps. Might have been that one. We don't really know what was going on here. And to a degree, some of this is speculation. But Paul the planter, Apollos the teacher, the establisher. I follow Kephas. Who is Kephas? Well, that's Peter. What's significant about Peter? Well, he was the one who preached in the day of Pentecost. He was the one who witnessed the tongues. He was the one who witnessed the great miraculous display of people hearing in their own language the gospel. People drawn from different parts of the world that time on that day of Pentecost. Peter was the one who preached that day. Loads and loads and loads of people became Christians, saw a revival, and saw the great and miraculous. Maybe some people wanted to align themselves with Peter because he was the more exciting. He was the more charismatic. I'm, I'm, I'm a Kephas. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Peter follower. I'm more alive spiritually than the rest of you. You guys are just the doctrinal guys. I'm the spirit guy. Have you come across this before? And then you get this crowd. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Kephas. I follow Christ. Now, surely that's not a bad thing. I mean, Paul, surely you would commend that. What's going on here? You know those guys. Oh, I'm not this denomination or that denomination. I'm just a Christian. You know those guys? <laughs> Sorry, maybe you're one of them. Um, you know those guys that kind of try to outpious you? Oh, we're non-denominational. You know those guys? They were even somehow using Christ's name. You see, the Paul people were looking down their noses at the Apollos people, who in turn were looking down their noses at the Kephas people, and then who in turn were looking down their noses at the Christ people. In fact, the Christ people were looking down their noses possibly at them all. Is that the way this should work? Is that really the way this should work? I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Somehow, somehow, what had happened to the Corinthian church was that they were lining up between worldly figures or worldly movements or worldly men. They were dividing and dividing and dividing. And that division was somehow reflective of what the culture was like. The culture around them became the culture of the church. And division ensues. Paul pulls them 
back and says, this is ridiculous. Is Christ divided? These various rhetorical questions. Have a look here. Is Christ divided? Of course the answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Absolutely not. They were even using baptism to exercise some kind of spiritual superiority. Imagine that. Using baptism, that incredible picture of the cleansing that comes from Jesus Christ. Our complete inability to respond to anything except that which God does in us. That's what baptism is a picture of. Imagine using baptism to look down your nose at others. Even, some of them might even have claimed, you know, Paul baptized me. You know, Paul dunked me in the water. Paul sprinkled on my forehead. That's just to keep everyone happy. Paul says it's ridiculous. He says, I think, verse number 16. Is that right? No, verse number 14. I apologize. I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Thank God I didn't do any of that, Paul says, because what would happen? You'd have the Paul sect within the church. All those who are Paul baptized people. I thank God that I didn't, apart from two of you. And then probably Stephanus, the amanuensis, the secretary, shouted out, oh, hang on, Paul, no, it was just more than them. Have a look at that. Um, look at verse number 16. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not remember, or I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. You see that? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? None of them could wear the Paul sticker. None of them could have an identity that was Pauline. None of them could do that because Paul didn't want that and he didn't allow that. Instead, this immature church had been established by Paul as he did what? Have a look. Verse number 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. That was his job. Notice what his job was. Not to make society better. Not to redeem the city. Not to kind of heal. Not to educate in that kind of way, to increase the worldly wisdom of people. No, Paul preached the gospel. Baptisms were probably done by local elders, maybe even deacons, maybe family members. It wasn't Paul's job to do that. His job was to preach Jesus Christ, to talk about the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him to talk about the one who came from heaven, the glory and the splendor of heaven, who became a man, who, who died on a cross, cruel nails through his hands, 
a crown of thorns pushed onto his head, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spoke of that man. He preached Jesus. You can imagine him as he's standing there in no eloquence. Not with fancy words. Not with clever arguments. Just weakness and a weak message. Verse number 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Whilst Jesus eternally and spiritually is enough for these people, they didn't think that he was enough. The Corinthians didn't reject him, but they thought, not enough. I need more. See, they thought that if there was a leader who had eloquent speech, clever argument, they would line up behind them. Because that was the way. Not the way of Christ, but the way of Corinth. They thought, look, we'll line up behind him because he's got a clever argument. We'll line up behind him because he's got great rhetorical skill. We'll line up behind him because he's got great miraculous skill. Paul said, no. It's about this message. See, that's what you have to give this world. It's the only thing. We're trying to do work around these streets, doing some kind of clever approach. Obviously, we're being thoughtful about what we do and how we do it, but is there some kind of different message for these streets? Some kind of different message for those streets? Some kind of different message for the university? Some kind of different message for the poor people? Some kind of different message for the middle class people, for the BT Niners? for the BT-8ers, for the BT-7ers? Of course, there's got to be, because not everyone's need is the same. Yes, it is. Your need is the same as my need. That is my sin. Your sin. We, we, need, to, we need to be rescued from it, and God has provided a way, and it's called Jesus Christ. He is called Jesus Christ, and the message of the gospel is the answer. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with clever words, not clever argument, just Jesus. Present Jesus. When you present Jesus Christ, like Zach's life was turned upside down, turned around. He's sure God loves him, not looking at himself, but looking at Jesus. If you're a Christian this evening in the room, you will know, you will know that God loves you. He poured out his love for you. How do you know? Because there's a man hanging on a Roman gibbet 2,000 years ago outside a city called Jerusalem. That's how you know 
that message, the gospel, makes a difference between heaven and hell, eternal life, eternal death, being included in the family of God as one of the children of God or not. So, are you religious? Are you spiritual? Or are you a Christian? Have you become a Christian? You can very easily, simply do it. I'm going to pray a prayer now, just a second. I want to say sorry to God. Thank you to God. And please, God, would Jesus be the king of my life? If you want to pray something like that, please do. I'll say the words. Well, just keep quiet, just for a moment. You can bow your head. You don't have to look around or anything. I'll pray the words. And if you want to say something like that to God tonight, you can say it directly to him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. I am sorry for my sin, my rebellion, my turning away from you, my not loving you or my neighbors. I am sorry for that. Thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus for me to bear the weight of my sin and his death on the cross. Please, would Jesus be the king of my life? Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for these words. We give you thanks for these stubborn words. We give you thanks for these words that challenge us. We pray that these words over the next couple of months would so shape our thinking that we would love Jesus more and proclaim him more to the ends of the earth. We give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.